book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and, and we're also going to be in Acts chapter 17. And that's pretty much the two texts I'm going to use. So in Acts 17, we read about the beginnings of this church at Thessalonica. Yes, I know you pronounce it differently, but it's good to have your assumptions challenged every once in a while. And uh, that's why they invite me to these things. So uh, Acts chapter 17, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, that's important. Paul had some habits, some good habits, some godly habits. He was in church whenever he could be, even the Jewish church, which did not fully embrace, and as you'll see here in this story, did not always warmly receive the truth of the gospel, but it was still critically important to Paul, just as it was to Jesus. I think it's in the third or fourth chapter of Luke, fourth chapter, where he says, Jesus, as his custom was, was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So if Jesus has a habit of going to church, and God inhabits the praises of his people, and the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and Paul had a habit of being in church, these are some great examples for us. So as his manner was, he went in unto them in the synagogue, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scripture. Reasoning is important, but the reasoning had to be rooted in the Scripture. All these things are important because we're going to see in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that he says that the manner of his entering in unto them had something to do with the way in which they followed him. And my topic this, this morning is, Be ye followers of me. So, um, he reasoned with them out of the Scripture, using the Old Testament Scriptures. And a lot of folks today, I've actually had conversations with people who said, I just don't have time to read the Old Testament. I'm going to spend all my time in the New Testament. I appreciate all the good work the Gideons have done. Every hotel room I've ever stayed in has had a Gideon Bible in there, and I'm thankful for that. But the Gideons also decided to make uh, passing out Bibles easier by handing out New Testaments only, which leaves out the foundation of the gospel. It leaves out uh, the gospel according to Isaiah, in addition to the, you know, the traditional gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for example. And so Paul, using the Old Testament scriptures and using his God-given, Holy Spirit-guided insights and studies in those scriptures, went into the house of God three days, three Sundays, three Saturdays in a row, three Sabbath days, and reasoned with them out of the scriptures. And while he was doing that, he was opening and alleging, opening, explaining, alleging, arguing, uh, not argumentatively, but persuasively, that kind of argument, opening and alleging that Christ, and they didn't think he meant Jesus when he first said that, Christ meant the anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And so he was talking at first kind of abstractly. This Christ that we all think about and look forward to, this Christ had to have suffered and had to rise again, which means he had to have died, risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is that same Christ. This was his argument, a very simple, fundamental presentation of the gospel rooted in the scripture. Yes, you meet people where they are. Uh, Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, didn't say, well, I understand why you're confused about that text. Let me go find another one to explain to you Jesus. No, he said he opened it to the selfsame scripture and preached unto him Christ. So you do meet people where they are, but you also meet them with the word of God and you lay out the fundamental beauty of the gospel of salvation by grace through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The response is what Christians and churches have come to expect. Some of them believed, praise God, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks and a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. If there's ever a primitive Baptist heavy metal band that gets started, I want you to consider the name lewd fellows of a baser sort. I just think that is a a primo description right there. They took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So they had some that believed and they had some that rejected. And in some cities, they had some that said, we'll hear you again on this matter. In this day and age, I'm happy just for the ones who will hear me again on this matter. But praise God that there were those whose hearts were opened just like Lydia's was when Paul preached to her or came to visit her and the women's prayer meeting and the jailer and everybody else in Philippi to start that church in the previous chapter. But here they meet with a warm reception from those whose hearts are touched by this beautiful, simple, profound message of the gospel. And they're also met with resistance from people who don't like to have their presuppositions challenged. They, they don't want somebody to upset their apple cart. And that's exactly what's happening. It's even worse than that. We'll see in a couple of verses. Not just an apple cart, but the entire world. They don't want the social order disturbed. They don't want the position, the status, the influence that they've carefully cultivated over a lifetime to be threatened. They don't want to start over and, and challenge and question all their assumptions and begin afresh. And in fact, they are moved with envy, the scripture plainly tells us, meaning that they wish that they could have been as persuasive as Paul was. Maybe if I could have peddled that gospel, I would have, I would have been okay with it. Maybe like Simon Magus, you know, if I could uh, buy, purchase the, the gift of bestowing the Holy Spirit on people, I'd be, I'd be perfectly okay with it. But Paul came in and, and Silas and, and, and delivered this powerful message, and they were going to have none of it. So they turned the whole city against them, assaulted the house where they were staying, and when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. You know, it's funny, the Christians, the, 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 the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, and it wasn't by their friends. It was their enemies saying, these are those people trying to follow Christ. And that label stuck. And we still talk about Christians today. This was another label given to the early church by its enemies. These people are upsetting the social order. These people are turning the world upside down. And they're come here and they're trying to do the same thing in our city and we can't have it. But what an incredible description. What a picture of the impact of the gospel and of the New Testament church to see that, yes, indeed, it can and it does turn the world upside down. Not always all at once, not always a whole city at a time. I know Jonah had a pretty remarkable experience with the whole city of Nineveh repenting in sackcloth and ashes, but in most cases, that's not what happens. But the world is still being turned upside down one soul, one person at a time. And it's my prayer that this week at this conference, your world can be turned upside down a little bit. Your apple cart will be upset. Your assumptions and presuppositions will be challenged. And you'll be uh, inspired to think freshly about what God's Word so beautifully declares. 
So they make these accusations, and as Brother Mike said, they accuse them of doing these things contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus, the same issue that Jesus himself faced uh, before the, the bar of Pontius Pilate, uh, when the people said, no, our king is, Jesus, our king is Caesar. We, don't, we have no other king but Caesar. And, and of course, Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. You, you guys are, are, are manufacturing a charge against me. But, uh, but, but they're doing the same thing here. They're, they're inspiring loyalty to another king that's not Caesar. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason, that means they took a big chunk of money, a big bail bond to let him go. And of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Same plan. Go back to church. Go back to where there are people who have, have at least a cultural respect for the Word of God. I'm not saying you can't speak to anybody who doesn't, because you'll see that there were Greeks who were impacted by this as well, who weren't necessarily routinely in synagogue. But, but starting with somebody who has an acknowledgement of the existence of God, of, the, of, of at least the uh, soft inspiration of Scripture, meaning it's inspiring. You know, I want it on a little uh, note by my bed or a, a plaque in my bathroom. I'm not sure I really want to read it all, but, you know, at least if, if it's inspiring in that way, well, hey, there's some ground to start. People who treat the Word of God with some respect. And so they do the same thing again in Berea. And I just do want to point this out in passing, free of charge. In verse 11, I've quoted this verse and read this verse all my life. And it was not until the last year that I actually read it carefully in context and realized I'd been misunderstanding it. I always thought the Thessalonians were pretty good, but the Bereans were better. That's not the case. The Thessalonians were, were fantastic. God took some, some, some rotten, wretched sinners and saved them by grace, and they were on fire for the Lord. It wasn't that the Bereans were better than the Thessalonians. It was that when he went into the synagogue, the response of the Jewish population in these two cities was different in degree. And here's the difference. The Berean synagogue uh, participants were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So again, a people with a, a ready reverence for the word of God, a, a willingness to receive Paul's reasoning from the scriptures with a readiness of mind. They didn't go to church thinking, how can I critique the preacher today? How can I uh, stir up a fight between two opposing factions in my church? How can I you know, bolster my own opinions? No, they went with an open mind, ready to receive the Word of God, but not so open that they didn't also study what they had received. They, in fact, searched the Scriptures daily whether these things were so. And then the story continues that the, the, the Thessalonian troublemakers follow them all the way to Berea. And as Brother Mike summarized, they had to uh, evacuate to Athens. So now let's go to the letter of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, Paul and Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timotheus, of course Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Interestingly, the, this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is perhaps the earliest uh, written letter or, or, or book in the New Testament. Uh, history students and scholars agree that it's certainly one of the earliest books of the New Testament. 
So early on, perhaps just weeks or months after his departure from Thessalonica, Paul writes this letter back and says, I can't stop thinking about you. I'm so excited about what the Lord's doing in your city. I'm sorry I had to leave, you know, so quickly, so abruptly. But I've heard that there's some influences creeping in, some influences of uh, religious conservatism, shall we call it? That was the Judaizers saying conservative means you want to conserve what it was, right? You don't want things to change. So uh, some Judaizers that are saying, no, these things are changing too much. Let's go back to the old ways. And on the other hand, you've got secular liberalism saying, you know, this stuff is nonsense and we should be free to do whatever we want. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die and all the other uh, errors of of pagan-rooted Greek philosophy. So Paul writes this letter to them and it is a a powerfully instructive letter. It's not just a pat on the head, but it is important to realize that Paul couches this important instruction in the tone of a loving parent or someone taking care of a baby. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Chapter 2, verse 7, We were gentle among you even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So I want you to see this incredible juxtaposition of the fiery boldness of a Paul who would be willing to be stoned for the, for the sake of the gospel, not willing to cut any corners. He's always going to lay the truth out exactly like it is. He's going to reason from the scriptures. He's going to open. He's going to allege. He's going to prove the case for the gospel from the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, he is so tenderhearted that it's like He's, he's, he's stooping down to caress a helpless baby. His own children is the way he views, just like the old Apostle John did, my little children in his letters. And so, in my mind, this is a, this, combining these two concepts is a little bit challenging. So you've probably seen some video footage or a photograph, a touching photograph of you know, a terrible tragedy on the battlefield or in a, a building that's burned down or something. And you see maybe a fireman or a policeman or, or a soldier or a guardsman you know, in full uniform, battle gear, you know, armor protected against the heat or against the bullets, you know, a helmet and grime and, and grit all over their faces and, and, and maybe even some blood trickling down but they found a helpless child inside the building or inside the war zone. And you see this, this big, burly, you know, intimidating character walking out tenderly carrying a tiny helpless child. That's how Paul was in his approach to these saints and in his ministry of the gospel. So he says, I'm thankful for you. I'm going to later have some things to say to you to correct you. I'm going to have some warnings for you. I'm going to have some pointed instruction for you. But I'm going to start by telling you, I can't stop thinking about you every day. And it makes me happy to think about you. I'm thanking God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Because I remember without ceasing three things. Your work, your labor, and your patience. Patience doesn't mean just putting up with things you don't like. Patience in the Bible means endurance. So he says, I remember your work, but it's not just any work. It's a work that came from a heart filled with faith. It's a work of faith. Faith works by love. Faith is not dormant. Faith doesn't do nothing. A a true faith in the true God doesn't leave you aimless and wandering with no meaning or direction in life. A true faith in the true God is what gives you purpose and meaning in life. And so he says, I remember 
that you immediately jumped in and you said, what can I do? Well, how can I contribute? You're like that, that uh, time that Peter and, and John met the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple and he asked for silver and gold and they said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. That such as I have principle. What do I have? What can I do for God's kingdom? I may be a widow with only two mites, but I'm going to put it all in. I'm all in. I'm 100% in for this cause. Your work that comes from faith. And your labor that comes from love. Again, this, this divine uh, attribute of agape love, this selfless willingness to sacrifice in the interests of another and not always someone who immediately returns that love to you. It's a love that is in God's scale of the unconditional sort. It's the kind of love that says, I'm going to love you even when you're unlovely and unlovable. And so you saints at Thessalonica, Paul says, you have labored out of a heart of that God-like love. And he says, you've endured. You've had patience. I remember your patience. And where did that patience come from? The patience, the endurance came from hope. And just like we could misunderstand the word patience, let me make sure we don't misunderstand the word hope. We today use the word hope very glibly. I hope I win the lottery. No, you don't. You don't have a confident, joyful expectation that you're going to win the lottery. And if you do, you need counseling. Uh, that's, that's not what hope means. Hope means a confident, joyful expectation. That means it has to have a ground, a basis, something solid that it's anchored in and pointing to our anchor, as Hebrews says, it, that reaches into the heavens, into the veil, behind the veil, and uh, anchor for the whole, the soul, sure and steadfast, anchor for our hope, sure and steadfast. And so Paul says, I remember without ceasing, just like I'm giving thanks always for you, I'm praying always for you, I'm remembering constantly your faith, your love, and your hope, and the fruits that come from these genuine works of grace, a faithful work, a faithful labor, and a persistent patience. Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, we can do this blindfolded if you want to. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but have you ever heard somebody say, well, you can't know if somebody's elect? Anybody ever heard that? Only three of us? Okay, well, all right. Yeah, so that, that gets said. I've probably said it, all right? I mean, let's just, all right. So, um, and, and we, you know, the Lord knoweth them that are His, uh, I, my knowledge is finite. His is infinite. But it is possible to know if somebody's an elect of God. And Paul tells us right here what that diagnosis, how that diagnosis looks. He said, I know that you're God's chosen ones. I know you're going through struggles right now. I know you're going through persecution. I'm sorry, I had to escape to another city, but you're stuck there and you're having to endure the continued onslaught of these people who wanted me dead or locked up. And I know you're going through hard times, but I know something even more important. I know that you are God's chosen ones and God has a purpose and a plan for you. How do I know that? How would, how would Paul know that they are the elect of God? He explains it in the next verse. Four, because... Because our gospel came not unto you in word only. A lot of people heard the word of the gospel Paul preached in Thessalonica. For many of them, it came in word only. And he did not write these words of assurance to those people. But to those with whom, to whom it came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost 
and in much assurance to those people, he said, I know you're God's chosen ones. I know because I see his truth, his word making a life changing difference in your hearts. I know because I see it turning the world upside down in your home, in your congregation. Yes, you still have problems that need to be corrected. Yes, you still need instruction. Yes, you still need to repent. You're not there yet, but praise God, you're on the way. God is molding you into the image of his own son to whom he predestinated you to be conformed. Romans chapter 8. So, let's see here. The gospel came, it did come in word. Let's not belittle that. It needed to come in word. It did come in word. But in addition to coming in word, it came in power and it came in the Holy Ghost and it came in much assurance. What a sweet impact. It's like being hit by a bullet that instead of killing you, makes you alive. It's, 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 this, it's this powerful impact that just strikes you and changes you forever. And he said, that's how I know God chose you, because he chose you to this. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. This affliction becomes a theme in this letter and in many of Paul's letters because it was Paul's own experience for sure. And he was also letting the saints know not to be surprised that it's going to be your experience. Jesus says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Jesus said, in this world, ye shall have tribulation. Thank the Lord that's not the end of the sentence. But he said, be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. You're going to have hard times, but it's okay because I've already won and I'm going to give you the victory. First Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so this victory is certain, and so we have this, this grounded hope that becomes the root of our patience, our endurance, so that we can work and labor out of the faith and love that are God's gifts in regeneration to every one of His children. Specifically, we want to think for a moment about Paul and his manner, because he highlighted here in verse 5. He said, "...as ye know what manner of men we were among you..." For your sake. You've, you've heard somebody say, well, I just got to be me. You've heard somebody say, well, be true to yourself. You've heard somebody say, well, follow your heart. That's bad advice, by the way. Only follow your heart if your heart's following Jesus. And only follow Paul, Paul would say, as Paul is following Jesus. But he said, you did become followers of us. Half a dozen times in his letters, Paul talks unabashedly about the importance of the saints following his example. He says it here in Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians three times. He says it again in Philippians 3, 17, be ye followers together of me. He says it in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, be followers of me. And he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be followers of me even as I am of Christ. And there he puts the nail in it. He says, to the extent that I am following Jesus, you follow me. Fathers, you need to be able to say that to your families. Parents, you need to be able to say that to your children. Pastors, deacons, leaders, you need to be able to say that to the congregation. And that's a little bit intimidating because I don't want everybody to follow me in all the steps I've taken because there have been some missteps along the way. But we're called to live to a standard that we can humbly and earnestly say, follow me, this is the way. This is the way we want to go. So what was Paul's manner how, what kind of men were they among the Thessalonians for the Thessalonians' sake? They didn't just go in and say, well, I'm Paul and this is how I am. 
They didn't just go in and say, well, I'm Silas and I'm sorry, you got to put up with my buddy Paul here. I'm a little bit nicer. No, they didn't go and do that. They had their personalities and they couldn't completely uh, erase them, but they, but, they, but they went with a tenderness of spirit seeking to recover people from the gates of hell. And Jesus had promised that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so they went with confidence into these pagan cities, into these legalistic synagogues, and they delivered, they, they gave the message of deliverance. And they gave it with love. They spoke the truth, but as Paul says in Ephesians, they spoke the truth in love. Let's look at a few of the uh, points that Paul or the, the approaches that Paul takes here, even in these few short verses we've read here. We saw in Acts that he reasoned with them and he reasoned out of Scripture and he reasoned to the conclusion that Jesus is Christ. You can't go wrong with that. That's the solid foundation of the everlasting gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then he opens his words, as he, his letter, as he does so many of his letters, with these tender expressions, grace and peace. Grace a generous, unmerited bestowal of favor. You don't deserve it. We'll talk about that later. But right now, let's just talk about how good it is that God is so generous to you. And they may have just gotten kicked out of their homes. They may have just lost their job. They may have and ultimately did lose family members and brothers and sisters in the church to martyrdom. But he says, God is so good to you. Even in the midst of these sufferings, God is pouring out His grace upon you because tied up in that grace is peace, a true everlasting reconciliation between parties who were at enmity with each other. And yes, as much as lies in you live peaceably with all men, we want to seek peace and ensue it on a horizontal plane. It is a worthy objective and something worth sacrificing for. But the promise here is the peace that passes understanding, a peace from God Almighty that brings wayward, rebellious sinners back into the family of God. Now, in his mind and covenant, he always had his children in view. When Christ was on the cross, our names were written on his hands, on the palms of his hands. But as he adopts us uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit from the family of Adam into the family of God, as He regenerates us by replacing the dead, stony heart with a living, beating, tender heart of flesh, just like a newborn babe, Paul says He's bringing you to peace. He has brought you to peace with God, to reconciliation with God. Well, with words like that, Paul, you can tell me anything. Go ahead and step all over my toes because I, I, I am secure in the, the comfort of knowing about God's grace and God's peace. Then, as we said, he remembered some things about them. He had them in his mind. He was, he was, it was a very personal relationship. It wasn't you know, some kind of hit-and-run evangelism, even though he was there less than a month, it appears, from Acts. He was not just there to you know, uh, pass out a few tracts, uh, you know, get a few acceptances, and then move on to his next speaking engagement. He cared about these people. He thought about these people. He remembered these people by names. He remembered the things they had done for him, for each other, and for the community in which they were. And he encouraged them in that. He remembered and reminded them of these things. And then he reinforced it. 
He, he, you know, it, it's always, it's, oh, there's always a temptation to say, well, you know, I've, I've tried hard. I mean, surely the Lord's going to give some credit for what I've done already, but I just can't do this anymore. There's always this temptation to be like, you know what, I'm taking today off or I'm taking the rest of the year off or you know what, I'm done. I've, I've done my part. I'm going to retire from the service of God unless some of these younger folks take it over. Well, guess what? There is no retirement in the, uh, in the kingdom of God. Well, let me rephrase that. The pay is not great, but the retirement plan is out of this world. So yes, you can retire one day, but not yet. So he, he encourages them and, and reminds them and reinforces in them the things that, they, that he's already seen, these um, more than glimmers, but these, these early signs of life and vitality and the energy of the Holy Spirit at work in this congregation and in these saints' hearts. You know, the word faith, it's important because this is, I think, the first letter, the first book written in the New Testament, certainly one of the earliest, as I said. And, and faith gets talked about a lot in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And if you just read the Thessalonian letters with no presuppositions, which is very hard to do. In fact, it's impossible to do. But if you could do it, if you just read these letters and you were trying to understand the concept of faith, I think you'd get a pretty good concept of faith. Today... Uh, um, uh, Western Christianity has, you know, complicated, oversimplified, distorted, twisted, and abused the notion of faith to where everybody can have faith in anything and it's just as good and it's equally valid. And even in conservative Christian circles, evangelical Christian circles, you know, you hear the phrase, well, just, just believe. Only believe. Well, the problem is that word just. You know, there's a whole... There's a whole uh, set of false teachings going around that, that are labeled easy believism. This notion that it's just a decision. Just decide. Your life will be easier. Your life will be better. Just make up your mind and say, okay, I believe you, Jesus. But guess what? You can't. And then there are people who oppose the easy believism and they make belief out to be this incredibly complex, hard thing. Come to this class. Study this book. Oh, you made it through that one? Okay, we're going to give you an older book. Now study that one. And, keep, and, and answer all these questions these uh, catechism questions and, and go through an examination and now we think maybe possibly you're a real believer. So you got easy believism, you got hard believism, but the Bible teaches impossible believism. It's not easy, it's not hard, it's impossible. But with man, things that are impossible, with God, all things are possible. And God, by His sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, works in the heart shines forth, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, uh, just as He shined the light in the darkness in the dawn of time, shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's impossible. It's a miracle. Friends, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a walking miracle. The same power that it took to raise Jesus from the grave and carry Him all the way back up, up to heaven is the power it took to change your heart from being a self-centered shallow-minded rebel into being a willing follower of Jesus Christ. So this word faith is much more than just, than just believe, but it's also much more than just believing. That probably didn't make much sense, but it is the, the word faith and the word faithfulness and the word believe and the word belief these are all the same word. Pistis, pistuo in the Greek. It's a, a very simple word. And, and, and the word means all of these things. 
And so the theme of this conference, to stand fast, simply means to be faithful, to be one who is full of faith. Faith is not the beginner step, and then you progress in Christian maturity to faithfulness. Yes, your faith grows over time. It matures over time. Your faith is exercised like a muscle. But the faith God gives you is the faith of God's elect. And that faith will transform your life, and it will hold you fast, and it will never let you go. It's like Uncle Zach used to give the story about taking one of his small children across a busy street. And he said, I reached down and held my little child's hand. And my little child, intimidated by the noisy traffic, squeezed as tight as he could to my hand, and we got safely across the street. Now, let me ask you, whose hand made the difference? Was it the tiny little chubby toddler's hand squeezing for all it's worth? No, that grip could have been uh, broken in an instant. But it was the firm, strong, faithful grip of the father that got the child safely across the street. And your faith is anchored in God's faithfulness. So friends, to believe is to be anchored into the person and work of Jesus Christ, to be anchored to God through Christ the mediator, and it is a permanent operation of the Holy Spirit of God. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God bless you.